Welcome to the Calvary Baptist Church podcast, where we share weekly sermons from our church services. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. We are a multi-generational family church located in the heart of Little Rock. Calvary's mission is to glorify God by making disciples who make disciples. Whether you've long been part of our church family or are tuning in for the first time, we hope our podcast provides the same kind of welcoming space you'd find here on Sunday mornings. Most of all, we hope this space helps you engage God's word and grow in your faith. Take the next like 15, 30 seconds, turn to someone next to you and share one of your favorite holiday traditions that your family does or that you would like them to do. Go. All right, all right. A lot of smiling faces, a lot of laughter, a lot of good memories coming to mind. Um, one of my favorite Christmas traditions I've ever heard, it's not my family, but it's a family I know. So their children had an ornament of Elmo from Sesame Street, and apparently they loved this ornament to death. They got it when they were really little. And one year, sadly, Elmo falls from the tree and his leg falls off. So Elmo is missing a leg. But the the parents, in all of their ingenuity, instead of throwing Elmo away, they take a popsicle stick to his leg, and now it's Peg Leg Elmo, the pirate. (laughs) And every year, they still hang Peg Leg Elmo on the Christmas tree. We all have traditions that we love. A tradition in my family uh, was almost a tradition. So a fun fact about me, as you know, my name is Garrett. That was almost not my name. My name was almost uh, Frederick Frank Lindzen the fourth. That was almost, I was almost the fourth in my family, uh, my dad being the third. And believed it or not, my dad was the one who nixed that tradition. He did not want to pass down that name. And because of that, there will be no fourth, there will be no fifth, no sixth. So this morning, I want to talk about the importance of passing things down to the next generation, whether it's a tradition, a family name, or as we're going to discuss this morning, our faith. And the importance as parents, as an older generation, of passing down our faith to a younger generation. We're going to be in the book of 1 Samuel this morning. So if you have your Bible, uh, you can open that up to 1 Samuel chapter 1. If it's on your phone, you can scroll to it. Uh, If you're using your phone, I'd encourage you to put it on airplane mode so you're not tempted or distracted by any incoming emails or texts. Or we have Bibles in the pew in front of you that you can open up to. So 1 Samuel chapter 1. If you've been here over the last two weeks, we've had the privilege of hearing from some great leaders in our church when it comes to the next generation and discipling the next generation. And I would just like to express how blessed we are as a church and how I am as a pastor on staff here to have such amazing volunteers and leaders serving in this way. 
Not just Hayden and Ben who spoke in the prior weeks, but everyone serving in the area of children's ministry, student ministry, and young adult ministry. So when Pastor Scott asked me to share on the next generation, when he told me about this series we were doing, he said, all right, and you're going to be the closer for the series. You're going to wrap it all up and talk about next generation and next generation ministry. A million possible topics came to mind. Because there are a million ways you could take that. I could talk about current challenges facing the next generation today, talking about record levels of anxiety or depression or struggles with identity, figuring out who they are. I could talk about how can we reach a generation that statistically is the least religious in America's history? How can we address that challenge? Or how do we address a generation with the truth of Scripture when we live in a post-truth society? A society that says, what's true for you is true for you, what's true for me is true for me, and if we disagree, that's fine. You have your truth, and I have mine. And all of these are well worth attention and discussion, and I think in many ways they are a symptom of a larger challenge, something that if we as believers fully understand will impact all of these difficulties we mentioned. And that is this idea of family discipleship. And that's what I would like us to talk about this morning is family discipleship. Uh, If I had to give a definition, I would say that's the responsibility of parents to be the primary disciple makers of their children. And obviously, household looks different, so you may sub in grandparents and grandchildren there. You may sub in guardian, whatever that role is in the household. But that responsibility to be the primary disciple maker of the next generation in your household, in your family. You see, throughout scriptures, we see that parents are called to be their primary disciple makers through scripture. In Deuteronomy 6, Starting in verse 4, it says, Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. You must commit yourself so heartily to these commands that I'm giving you today. And we know that part of it. I think we often stop before it gets to the next verse that says, Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road and when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. We see this same idea in the book of Psalms 78, starting in verse 4. We will not hide these truths from our children. We'll tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of our Lord, about his power and his mighty wonders. For he issued his laws to Jacob He gave his instructions to Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach them to their children so the next generation might know them. My hope this morning is that we'll walk away with a better understanding of the importance of family discipleship and that we'll see that it is vital if we want to make a lasting impact on the next generation. And to do this, I want us to look at two families we see in Scripture. We see in the book of 1 Samuel. The first family we see is the family of Eli. So Eli is the high priest this time, and he has two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who are serving with him. So they are Levites, so it is their responsibility 
to serve at the tabernacle, to oversee the sacrifices and the offerings the people of Israel would make to God. So that's family one. And in contrast, we see another family, a family of a woman named Hannah, who is married to a husband who also has another wife. So she is one of two. And she is unable to conceive when we meet her. She is unable to bear a child. And she longs for a child, we see in Scripture. And this lack of childbearing, this lack of children, would lead to mistreatment by her husband, who would favor the other wife more. In fact, this other wife would taunt her for not being able to conceive a child. So this morning, I want us to look at these two families and see what we can glean about family discipleship. So let's look at Hannah first. So if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11, we see that Hannah has been longing for a child for a long time. And when they come to Shiloh, where the tabernacle was, she offers up this prayer to the Lord. She says in 1 Samuel 1, verse 11, O Lord of heaven's armies, if you look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a song, then I will give him back to you. He will be yours for his entire lifetime and is a sign that he is dedicated to the Lord. His hair will never be cut. So Hannah offers this prayer and they return home. And to Hannah's joy, the Lord hears her prayer and answers her prayer. And she ultimately gives birth to a son and names this son Samuel, which is who this book is named after, which means God's faithfulness, that God is faithful. So now Hannah is in this moment where she offered this prayer to God, said, God, if you give me this son, I will give him right back to you. I will dedicate him to you. So now she has the choice. Does she keep up her end of the prayer? God's been faithful. Or should we be faithful to God? And Hannah being strong in faith, we see a year later, once the child is weaned, takes him to the temple and dedicates him to the Lord. In verse 24, it says, when the child was weaned, Hannah took him to the, temp- the tabernacle in Shiloh. They brought along a three-year-old bull for the sacrifice and a basket of flour and some wine. After sacrificing the bull, they brought the boy to Eli. Remember, Eli is the high priest at this point. Sir, do you remember me? Hannah asked. I am the very woman who stood here several years ago praying to the Lord. I asked the Lord to give me this boy, and he has granted my request. Now I'm giving him to the Lord and he will belong to the Lord his whole life. And they worshiped the Lord there. So the first thing we need to understand about family discipleship is that family discipleship begins with a proper view of God and a proper view of our children. Begins with a proper view of God and a proper view of our children. Hannah understood that although God had blessed her with Samuel, he still ultimately belonged to the Lord above anything else. And in this, we see kind of echoes of Abraham and Isaac in the Old Testament, of Abraham longing for a son and the Lord giving him Isaac and then putting him to a moment to test his character. Will you choose your son or will you choose me? And in this moment, Hannah had that same choice. She could have chosen to to keep her son, Samuel, but instead she chose to dedicate that son to the Lord. She didn't let her love for her child discredit her obedience to God. Instead, she held those intentions and knew that obedience to God, devotion to God, was of utmost importance. And I am constantly 
impressed by the devotion of parents to their children. As someone who does not have a child, it blows my mind how devoted parents can be, that especially like young children. You know, you've, we've all seen other kids, toddlers running around Walmart screaming and all that stuff. We know what I'm talking about. None of y'all's kids would ever run around Walmart and scream. I know that, but other people's kids do that, right? But despite the tantrums and the fits and the meltdowns and the accidents and the pushing and the shoving, the kicking, the screaming, the crying, there is total devotion to that child. Or there should be. A parent should be that devoted. It is true that not everyone in here probably has that same reality or experience. And if that's you, if you have not experienced that devotion of a parent, no, you do have a heavenly father who is devoted to you. Parents are to be devoted to their children to raise them up, to support them, to provide for him. But let me ask a question this morning, kind of an interesting question. Can a parent be too devoted to their children? Can a parent be too devoted to their child? Let's look at Eli and his sons and explore this question. So just remember, Eli and his sons, they were in charge of overseeing the tabernacle a very high calling with much responsibility. Yet as the story continues, we see things are not going as they should. The narrative shifts perspective from Hannah and her family to Eli and his family. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were scoundrels, not starting off great. They were scoundrels who had no respect for the Lord, or for their duties as priests. Whenever anyone offered a sacrifice, Eli's sons would send over a servant with a three-pronged fork. While the meat of the sacrificial animal was still boiling, the servant would stick the fork in the pot and demand that whatever was brought out be given to Eli's sons. All the Israelites who came to worship in Shiloh were treated this way. This is bad. This is not good. Eli's sons were not allowing the meat of the animals that were sacrificed to be fully offered to God before they took it for themselves. So in essence, they were stealing from God what people were offering to him and making it for themselves. And we go on to learn that everyone knew this. Everyone was aware of this behavior. Even their father, Eli, was aware of this behavior. Yet despite his awareness of the sin in his children's lives, he waits until old age to finally address this. In uh, chapter 2, verse 22, we see that now Eli was very old, but he was aware of what his sons were doing to the people of Israel. He knew, for instance, that his sons were seducing young women who assisted at the entrance of the tabernacle. Eli said to them, I've been hearing reports from all the people about the wicked things you're doing. Why do you keep sinning? You must stop my sons. The reports I hear among the Lord's people are not good. So we see Eli finally in his old age decides to rebuke his children, yet seemingly it is too little and too late for his sons do not repent. We don't see them repent. We don't see them turn from their ways. They do not listen. They were seemingly too entrenched in their own sin to listen to what their father had to say. Perhaps Eli waited too long to correct this behavior. Perhaps he was all talk, but no action to back it up. We don't know the exact reason Eli's sons didn't obey their father, but we do know what God has to say to Eli about this situation. 
1 Samuel 2, verse 27 through 29. On a day, a man of God came to Eli and gave him the message from the Lord. I revealed myself to your ancestors, and they were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. I chose your ancestor Aaron from among all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer sacrifices on my altar, to burn incense, to wear the priestly vest as he served me. And I assigned the sacrificial offerings to your priest. So God is reminding Eli of this long commitment that they have had. And then he says, why do you give your sons more honor than you give me? For you and they have become fat from the best offerings of my people in Israel. That verse stands out to me so much in this passage. Why do you give your sons more honor than you give me? So can you be too devoted to your children? Seemingly the answer is yes. When we become more devoted to our children than devoted to God, we create an idol in our lives. By creating space for habitual sin in his children's lives, Eli was honoring them more than he was honoring God. He chose to prioritize their wants and desires over the commands of the Lord. And if we're honest, church, we see this same thing in our culture today. What we don't prioritize, we lose. Going back to my example earlier, my my parents didn't prioritize the continuation of that family name. It's gone. Like there's not going to be a fourth, a fifth, a sixth. And in our households, are we prioritizing our faith and our obedience to God or are we prioritizing the needs and the wants of our children more? And that is not to say that you need to neglect your children, that you don't, you need to ignore your children, or that you have to ignore them to be faithful to God. That is not true. Does this mean it's okay for our children to replace God, though, as the desires of our hearts? It's not. Um, in his book, Family Ministry in the Church, there's a pastor named Chris Shirley who writes a lot about family ministry and this idea of family discipleship. And he points to this idea of compartmentalization as a larger issue that leads to this desire that we have in our lives. He says this about it. He says, many families live a compartmentalized existence, dividing the secular from the spiritual. And this mindset, spiritual concerns are regulated to church activities on Sunday and possibly Wednesday nights. On the other hand, day-to-day events and decisions at school or work, in the store, on the highway, in the community, are filtered through a secular lens. Consequently, life goals become separated from spiritual goals. Additionally, parents accentuate priorities like financial success, athletic expertise, academic achievement, and personal happiness and safety over attaining godly wisdom and following Christ unconditionally. Eli and his sons in this story serve as an example of the danger of a parent separating faith from family, of living that compartmentalized life, of prioritizing the desires of their children over obedience to God. And in contrast, we see Hannah, who doesn't allow her love for her child to replace her love for God. Children are a blessing from the Lord. That is truth, that is fact, that is scripture. And the devil would love to take that blessing that you've received from God and turn it into something you worship to pull you away from worshiping the God who gave you that blessing. We have to 
be on guard? Are we prioritizing our faith? Are we putting obedience to God at the forefront of our families? Or are we living a secular life here, a religious life here, and nary the two shall meet? And just a clarification, devotion to God in this sense is more than just devotion to a church calendar. I don't want you to walk away this morning and be like, man, I'm a terrible parent if I'm not there every time the doors are open. That is not what I am saying this morning. That is not my goal. Devotion to God continues into the home, shows up at the breakfast table, the dinner table, the ride to school, on vacation. It's more than a sense of obligation. We see Eli's kids. They were at the tabernacle all the time. They were there, and they still didn't get it. They still missed it. So don't feel like this is me demanding you to bring your kids to church every time the doors open. Yes, we want you here. Yes, we want to pour into and invest in you. But this devotion continues into the household. It starts in the household, and then it bleeds out from there. So we have to be have this right view of God and have this right view of our children for family discipleship. Second point, family discipleship is not limited or excluded to perfect parents. And we can just expel the myth right now. There's no such thing as a perfect parent, right? No such thing at all. And what I love about this story is that where Eli failed with his own sons, he succeeds with Samuel and the raising up and the pouring into Samuel. Samuel begins to grow up serving in the tabernacle, learning from Eli the roles and responsibilities of working at the tabernacle. We see a prime example of this when Samuel hears from the Lord for the first time, but he has a challenge recognizing God's voice in his life. God calls Samuel's name twice, but both times he runs to Eli, thinking it's Eli who's calling for him. But when God speaks to Samuel a third time, we see how Eli helps him discern God's voice in his life. First Samuel chapter 3, verse 7, we see that Samuel did not yet know the Lord because he had never had a me- heard a message from the Lord before. So the Lord called a third time, and once more Samuel got up and went to Eli. Here I am, did you call me? Then Eli realized it was the Lord who was calling the boy. So he said to Samuel, go and lie down again. And if someone calls again, say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So Samuel went back to bed. Despite Eli's past failures, despite his shortcomings, God still used him to pour into Samuel and shape his faith in a positive way. One of the reasons often listed or given by parents why they don't disciple their kids in the home, why they don't discuss scripture in the home on their own is because they feel unqualified to do so. And that's maybe like intellectually unqualified, things like I don't know the Bible well enough or I don't know how to answer my child's questions or I don't even know where to start. This is a big book. Where do I even start? But I think there are some parents who also may feel spiritually unqualified to disciple their children. Maybe having thoughts like, how can I teach my child to pray when I struggle to pray myself? Or how can I teach my child about patience when they've seen me lose my temper with their mother at the breakfast table? Or how can I teach my child to trust God when I myself am riddled with anxiety? 
parents, if you don't hear anything else this morning, you are the most qualified person to disciple your child. There was a, a church that did a study a while back. They were going to put together a list. What are the top qualities that we want of a youth volunteer? The top qualities we want of someone serving in our student ministry. And they got together, they did some polls, they had some discussion, and they came down to some core things they needed. So it needs to be someone who was consistent, someone who is regularly present in the life of one of their the students in the ministry, someone who's going to show up weekend and week out and be there for that student. And it needed to be someone that the student trusted so they could open up with them, have honest conversations with them, and get past that surface level. And needed to be someone who could offer discipline and correction when needed. So a close enough relationship that that adult could speak harsh truth, challenging truth into the life of that child. And on and on and on and on, they list these characteristics. And they get to the end of this list and they kind of have the realization, oh, we just described a parent. A parent has the consistency in a child's life. A parent has the trust of a child. A parent has the authority to speak discipline and correction to the life of their child. Parents, despite your shortcomings, your insecurities, and the doubts you have, you have the ability to make a positive spiritual impact on the life of your children. In those moments of doubt, don't believe the devil's lie that your family is the only one struggling to do this at home, because you're not, I promise. And you are not alone in that struggle. There are other families in this church who love to support you. There are other believers in this church. And that brings me to my, my last point, which ties it all, is that family discipleship is the responsibility of all believers. You may have been sitting here this morning thinking, all right, I'm not a parent. I'm off the hook this Sunday. But we all have a role to play in raising up the next generation. One, there are countless other parents and families in this church who you can learn from. Maybe people who are a bit ahead of you. Maybe you have toddlers. You can seek guidance from parents who have high school students, college students. We as a church staff want to offer support. We want to equip you to be the disciple maker that you're called to be. You're going to see us doing this throughout the year. Uh, we did this a little bit already with the summer worship guides we gave out, wanting to give you tools to get in God's word at home. You'll see some more things coming from us in the near future. But even outside the family unit, all believers are called to pour into the next generation. There's a very well-known statistic at this point that 80% of high school students will leave the church for a period of time once they graduate. So once they leave their home, once they leave their high school and they head off to whatever's next, 80% will walk away from the church for a period of time. So if we have 10 seniors graduate, two of those are going to get connected with the church wherever they go next. And there's been a lot of study on how can we combat this? Because that's a scary fact. That's scary information. And a recent study showed that one commonality between the 20%, between the students who stay connected, is if they had one or more spiritual role models in their life alongside their parents. So not just their parents, but other role models they can look up to. Other believers in their life who can offer guidance and assistance. Church, we could be the reason that a student moves from that 80% to that 
And that once they leave our doors for whatever's next, we know they are rooted in their faith. They know they have a support system here that will rally around them and encourage them and pray for them. That's the privilege we all have in family ministry and family discipleship, to rally around the families. You've heard me say a lot that family is more than just the household you live in. We are a family. And this is the shared responsibility of all of us, to serve the next generation, to pass on those stories of God's faithfulness. And we all have stories of God's faithfulness in our own lives we can share. So if you're here today and you don't have children, don't think you don't have a role to play in this next generation. Family discipleship is the shared work of all of us. It's discipleship that begins in the home, is supported by the church, and continues into every area of life. Begins in the home, supported by the church, continues into every area of life. So I'll leave you with one final question this morning, something you can ponder as you leave. What is the next step you need to take towards embracing family discipleship? Maybe it's as simple as you begin praying at home before meals, if you're not already doing that. Maybe you begin having conversations with your children during lunch about what they learned in Sunday school on a Sunday morning. If you're not a parent, maybe you volunteer your time in the nursery or the kids' ministry or the student ministry. Maybe you're in a season where you can invest in younger parents and lend an ear, offer wisdom. Wherever you are in life, we all have a role to play in family ministry and family discipleship. Whether you're like Hannah, just beginning your journey of parenthood, or like Eli, a person with regrets and mistakes, but who still desires to honor God. Wherever you find yourself today, know that you have a role to play in family discipleship and in raising up the next generation. Thank you for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. If you don't already have a church home, we invite you to join us in person each Sunday morning. Our contemporary worship service is at 9 a.m. and our traditional service is at 11.15. For more information, be sure to check out our website, cbclr.org.